a life verse, a verse that has some special importance and meaning to you, maybe a verse that was instrumental at a very key turning point in your life, a verse that you go back to over and over. Well, perhaps Leviticus 19.18 was Jesus' life verse. Do I know that? No, I don't know that. The title of this morning's message, Jesus' life verse, is pure clickbait. But it is a verse that Jesus quoted more than any other in the New Testament. It is a verse that we can say without qualification, Jesus actually obeyed, whereas no other human being who ever walked the face of the earth actually obeyed. Jesus did actually love his neighbor as himself. It is, as I mentioned in the, uh, earlier on, this may be the most known verse from the book of Leviticus, love your neighbor as yourself. It is a verse that we're, we're taking verse 17 and 18 together. It's in the middle of a, a, a section in chapter 19, a lengthy section of 37 verses that starts out with this summons, which could be really the title of this chapter, to be holy as I am holy. We see that in verse 2 of chapter 19. And, and so really you see uh, this, the first section that we looked up really seems to speak of the commands related uh, vertically to God, um, love towards God, and then it moves into commands related to how we relate to our neighbor. And these, these two verses in particular... If you read them, verse 17 and 18, they both start out with a negative and then move to a positive. The negative prohibition, not to hate your brother, is really parallel to the, the first stanza of verse 18. You shall not take vengeance, nor shall you keep your anger against the sons of your people. And then they're followed by a positive command, namely, in verse 17, to reprove your neighbor. And then the positive in verse 18 to love your neighbor as yourself. And so really, this does fit that <clears throat> kind of Pauline paradigm that we're familiar with of putting off one sin to put on another corresponding righteousness. And so the outline is very simple this morning. Only two points to avoid abhorrence of your neighbor and to aim at affection, love towards your neighbor, and even candid frank words towards your neighbor. So let's look first of all at avoiding abhorring your neighbor. He says in verse 17, you shall not hate your brother in your heart. And then again, we see the parallel in verse 18. You shall not take revenge. You shall not keep your, keep your anger against the sons of your people. Now, if you notice in this section, over and over, there's, there's phrases like neighbor, sons of your people, countrymen that are repeated over and over. So we see here that holiness or being devoted to the Lord is to be worked out in our relationships to one another. That there's, there's no such thing as a kind of holiness that's isolated from the people of God. He says, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, in verse 17. And surely this is the opposite of love. The opposite of love is hatred. And if love seeks the best good of its object, hatred here is indifferent and even averse towards the good of its object. It does not seek the good of its neighbor. And again, the parallel here is in verse 18. Having a vengeful heart, you should not take vengeance. Now, now keep in mind, verse 17 says you should not hate your brother in your heart. Even if it's something that just stays inside the recesses of your thoughts and your desires, God is against it. And, and I think this, this kind of explodes 
uh, a myth that sometimes floats around that, well, the, the New Testament is concerned about the heart, but the Old Testament is concerned about the externals. Well, we see here, God's concerned about the internals in the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament. God sees the motives of the heart. He's concerned why we do what we do. And we're not allowed to have hatred in our heart towards our fellow countrymen, our neighbor, our brother. Nor are we to take vengeance. And again, this kind of explodes another myth that, well, in the Old Testament, it was an eye for an eye, a tooth for the for, for, for the tooth. But in the New Testament, you're to love your enemy. And, and usually this is based off of a misunderstanding of the Sermon on the Mount, right? Matthew chapter 5, verse 38 and 39, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. Verse 43 of Matthew 5, you shall love your neighbor. You have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you. And so this notion that in the Old Testament it was an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But in the New Testament it's love your neighbor is just flat out wrong. The principle of eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth was a judicial principle in the Old Testament. It was a, a principle for the judges, the magistrates, to use as a measuring stick for the appropriate punishment for somebody who broke the law. So if somebody, you know, breaks your lawnmower, uh, you know, lawnmower for lawnmower. They're to replace your lawnmower. Uh, if somebody, uh, you know, burns down your barn, barn for barn. Uh, they're to replace your bond. It was a judicial principle, but, but the principle of loving your neighbor is Old Testament and New Testament. It may look a little bit different. As we saw last week, you may not be leaving the edges of your garden for, you know, for, for those in poverty to come and glean from. But again, the principle is still there of being generous and open-handed. So he says... You're not to take vengeance. And, and we see this not only in this section in Leviticus, but also Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 35, where the Lord says, Vengeance is mine, and retribution in due time their foot will slip. For the day of disaster is near, and the impending things are hastening upon them. In other words, God says, I'm the one who is the executor of justice. Vengeance is mine. It's not for you. So that believers both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, when it comes to their personal relationships, vengeance is not an option. We are not the executioners of justice. The principles in our relationship with one another are not tit for tat. Nor are we to, as verse 18 says, you should not keep your anger against the sons of your people. You're not to, uh, as the New American Standard, I think the ESV also translates, you're not to bear a grudge against the sons of your people. And this is, this is the idea of holding anger in your heart against somebody. So, so, you're not allowed to take vengeance, but you're also not allowed to hold in your heart a grudge, anger in your heart against the sons of your people, which obviously is that which would lead to acts of vengeance. You see, God is concerned that we entrust judgment to Him. Now, there are through the law courts, both in ancient Israel and today, means in which we can try to bring about justice in this fallen world. We can notify 
the police. We can get the law courts involved. There's even opportunities when it comes to civil suits in this country to bring about lawsuits when we believe there has been injustices. But the reality is, is that justice in this fallen world is, is uh, it's a broken wheel, even though I think we have in this country one of the best um, judicial systems in the world. There's still the reality that murders go unsolved, that evil and wrongdoing happens and people are not brought to account. And so there can be temptations to take matters of justice into your own hands. To try to bring about the justice by your own doing. But God forbids such a thing. And to entrust judgment to Him. And calls us to deal with that bitterness or that anger that might settle in the heart. And be destructive to your own soul. This is sometimes what I call the boo-boo syndrome. You know what the boo-boo syndrome is? If, if you have a three or four year old child, grandchild, niece, nephew... And they scrape their knee, maybe they fall off their bike, and they get a boo-boo, right? Or maybe uh, they get in a conflict with another child, and they have some kind of scratch. And they'll regularly look at their boo-boo, and nurse their boo-boo, and show off their boo-boo to others. Look, boo-boo, boo-boo, look at my boo-boo. They'll tell others about their boo-boo. They'll regularly inspect their boo-boo to make sure their boo-boo's still there. <coughs> we can do similar things in more sophisticated ways as adults. We have certain hurts, certain sins that people have committed against us, and we regularly think about those grievances. We regularly ponder them. We talk with others about them. We regularly talk with others about them. And in our hearts, we're just cultivating and festering this, this wound in our hearts in which we are holding grudges against others. And it's never healthy. It's never productive. In fact, so often the, the grievances that, again, maybe very real hurts, very real sin that people have, has done towards us, it doesn't hurt them. It doesn't hurt the villain. It just hurts yourself. In fact, somebody has said that bitterness is the poison you drink while waiting for the other person to die. It's the, the cup of poison you keep sipping on and nursing and like a, a flask under your coat. You, you, you break out periodically and keep sipping on and you think, yeah, 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 you're really getting it. No, they're not. Not at all. But you keep hurting yourself. You keep destroying your own soul. The Apostle Paul picks up on this theme in the New Testament in Romans chapter 12, verse 18 and 19. He says, if it is possible, so far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved. Instead, leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay. He says, leave room for the wrath of God. God says, vengeance is mine. I am the judge. I will bring about justice. And all sins will be paid for either upon the cross for those who are in Christ 
or in hell forever. And so he says, leave room for the wrath of God. Don't try to push God out of the way and be the judge. You're not the judge. God will bring about justice and trust it to him. Or as John Piper says in a very pithy way, don't slight the judge and hold a grudge. <laughs> don't slight the judge and hold a grudge. You see, that's what a grudge does. It says, God, I don't trust you to be judge. I can do a better job and I will make sure they get what's coming to them. But no, my friend, God is a perfect judge. He not, may not move as swiftly as you would like him to. But he will bring about justice in due time. You need to trust him. Trust him. And so, my friend, do you sit here this morning holding a grudge against another, cultivating bitterness in your heart? God is calling you to put that off. God's standard this morning for you is not to have hatred in your heart. God's standard for you this morning is not to take vengeance, not to hold that anger in your heart towards another. And this really is, is only possible in light of, 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 of the context here of God's redeeming grace. God's redeeming grace, if you, if you look down towards the end of the chapter, in verse 34 it says, The sojourner who sojourns among you, Chapter 19, verse 34. With you shall be as native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. Does that sound familiar? That's verse 18, right? For, here's the reason why, here's the motivation, here's the rationale. For you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. I am Yahweh your God. You remember you were slaves? You were aliens, and what did I do to you? I extended my hand of kindness and love and grace towards you and plucked you out of bondage in Egypt. Remember when your boys were being thrown into the Nile River? And I heard your cries, and I delivered you, I saved you, I rescued you. And now for New Covenant saints, it's the same idea, right? Remember the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4, 31 and 32? Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and all malice be put away from you. But be tenderhearted, compassionate, kind to one another. Forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. God has been merciful to you if you are in Christ here this morning. He has been tremendously kind to you. He has blanketed all your sins. You have been a professional sinner from your childhood up on into adulthood to this very day. He has called you to love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You have not loved him. He has called you to love your neighbor as yourself and you have not loved other as, as yourself. But God has been kind and merciful to you. He has forgiven you of it all. He sent the Lord Jesus to die upon the cross. And he has redeemed you. And he calls you to extend that posture of grace towards others around you. Towards those who have sinned against you. He 
has loved you. He has been kind towards you. And he's calling you to be kind and loving towards others. Make sense? I told you this is easy to understand. It's harder to apply. Some things in Leviticus are harder to understand. This not so much. But a lot more difficult to put into practice. So, not only do we avoid abhorrence towards one another, to put off that hatred, that bitterness of the heart, that vengeful posture. But now the positive, we're to aim for affection and candid words towards one another. Notice again, verse, the last part. We'll start with the last part in verse 18. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am Yahweh. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then here's that refrain that we see over and over. I can't remember how many times. I think maybe 16, 17 times throughout this whole chapter. I am Yahweh. And it's a shorthand for I am Yahweh who has delivered you out of, uh, out of the house of, of Egypt. I am Yahweh. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Notice the contrast. But instead of this bitterness, instead of this anger, instead of this vengefulness, this hatred, instead you are to love your neighbor. Now, we, we live in a culture that perhaps more than any other culture talks about love, right? I mean, how many songs out there have love in them how many movies out there are all about love right and yet at least when we measure the standard of love that we see in our culture to what the bible says about love there is something of a disparity something of a difference I mean, even the word love in our English language could include anything from the love that a parent has for their child to I love Skittles, <laughs> right? And, and yet, we would all say, hopefully you don't love Skittles in the same way that you love your wife. In, in other words, often we use the word love in such a way that, that speaks more of how it makes me feel, namely good, happy feelings after I eat a bag of Skittles, versus me actually being committed to the good. I mean, when you say I love Skittles, you're not saying I'm committed to the good of this bag of Skittles. That's not what you're saying, right? You're saying, I, I delight in them, I enjoy them, I, I like the way they make me feel. But, but often that then flows into e even how we, we speak of love in our relationships with one another. When we say, you know, I'm in love. And, and what we mean by that, I feel good because I'm now in a relationship with somebody else. I mean, but you don't fall in love at least not in any kind of biblical sense. You may fall in a ditch. You may fall out of bed. You may fall down the stairs, but you don't fall in love. So what is love according to the scripture? Love, I'm contending, seeks the best good of its object. And, and the good of its object ultimately has to be defined by God. God knows what's good for us. He knows what's best for us. He's laid it out in his word. In other words, you can't have real love without law, without his standard of what's good, without his standard of what's right and what's wrong. This is so very important for us. 
Because we live in a culture that, again, as we saw a couple weeks ago, we see prohibitions in chapter 18 against all manner of sexual perversions, whether it's homosexuality, bestiality, adultery. And so we can know those aren't good, right? But we live in a culture that say, what's wrong with what two people, what's wrong with when two people love one another? Well, if God says that's not good, then that's not loving towards one another. In the ancient world, again, in ancient Israel, for persons to engage in homosexuality or adultery or bestiality, it it led to death, right? These were capital crimes. And so, I mean, you know, if somebody, uh, you know, allured you into murdering somebody else today, would we say, well, that's, that's, that's a loving thing to do? No. Now, of course, in, in our day and age today, we, homosexuality, adultery, these are not capital crimes in our law courts. But nonetheless, they still lead to death. They lead to damnation. They lead to destruction and human misery. It's the same thing with abortion. We, we looked in chapter 18. You shall not sacrifice your seed to Molech. You shall not sacrifice your children. Many of you know the sitting governor of the state of California thought it his business to put advertisements all throughout different states that have laws against abortion. These advertisements said, quote, need an abortion? California is ready to help. And in smaller lettering, lettering the ad cites the words that Jesus quotes from Leviticus here, love your neighbor as yourself. There's no commandment greater than these. And so, again, it's very important that we need to understand what the Bible teaches about love. The world would say it's a loving thing to sponsor the murder of a, a, a woman's baby. And we have to say, no, that's not loving because Leviticus 19 comes after Leviticus 18. And so God knows what's good for others. And so love, seeking the best good of others, has to be defined by God himself. So love does not coddle others in their sin or encourage others in their sin. Love calls people back to the Lord, back to his righteousness. Also, this verse needs some clarification. Love your neighbor as yourself because so much of the church world has been influenced by the therapeutic world around us. And so there's even been some Christians who say there's actually, uh, you know, there's three great commandments. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. Love your neighbor and love yourself. That's not what this verse says. Or they'll sometimes say, well, how can you love your neighbor as yourself if you don't love yourself? So first you have to love yourself, then you can love your neighbor. And the logic of it might even sound compelling. Were it again, not for the fact that Jesus doesn't command us, nor does Moses give us the command to love yourself. It's assumed Self-love is something that's assumed. It's assumed here. It's assumed all throughout the Bible. The person who does not love themselves does not exist. 
There is no such person. It's built into the human will. Every choice you make has self-interest. It's impossible to avoid. Even the good decisions that you make have self-interest in them. You make choices to seek your own best good. I mean, even the, the gospel appeal. Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will have eternal life, full forgiveness of sins. And you say, I believe, I repent. Why are you doing that? I don't want to go to hell. I want to go to heaven. I want to be with Jesus. Well, you're so selfish. Well, no. You love yourself. It's assumed. Everybody loves themselves. Even, and I, I hesitate to bring this up because of how challenging it may be even the bringing the issue up, but even somebody who would tragically seemingly be the epitome of self-hatred, somebody who takes their own life. I would suggest to you even that most grievous act is an act of self-love. Somebody saying, this life is so painful... That whatever's on the other side of death is better than this. And say they do it out of self-love. So self-love is assumed. We don't need help at loving ourselves. You guys are sitting here this morning. You're, nobody came in tank top and shorts and flip-flops this morning. Why? You, you like to be able to feel your toes, right? Even though some of you may, how warm it is in here, be struggling with that. You, you, you put adequate clothing on yourself. You, you maybe even kept your coat on this morning because it's a little chilly in here. You fed yourself. You, you made yourself coffee this morning. Hopefully you brushed your teeth as well. All, all these things you do for yourself, right? Now, the standard here is to love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. So all that concern that you have for yourself, take that and turn it on to others around you and seek the good of those around you. Now, that's a high standard. To love other people as much as you love yourself. That is a challenge indeed. Derek Tidball in his commentary on Leviticus, he says, the exhortation to love one's neighbor as, as one loves needs explanation, especially in days when feelings are the touchstone of everything. And where instead of taking this as a command genuinely to love their neighbors, people often use it as an excuse for self-love. Neither here nor when Jesus repeated and endorsed this command was narcissistic self-love advocated. The phrase, as yourself, is a recognition not only of the situation as it is, but of the wisdom of having self-respect. People naturally care for themselves and in general terms do not hate their own bodies. This command is saying that granted this, others should be treated with the same respect shown, the same consideration as we instinctively apply to ourselves. And so the standard for us to love others is to love others as much as we love ourselves. To be concerned about others. Or as Jesus summarizes in the Sermon on the Mount, to treat others as you would have them treat you. And so it's, it's a very helpful, important principle. It's a principle that we see, I think, played out later on in the relationship between Jonathan and David. Remember in 1 Samuel chapter 18, it says, Now it happened when he finished speaking to Saul that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. 
Jonathan loved him as his own soul. What a commendation there. Jonathan loved David as his own soul. Verse 2, and Saul took him that day and did not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan cut a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, even his sword and his bow and his belt. Jonathan gives David his robe. Now for us that might not seem tremendously significant except for the fact this would have been a royal robe. Jonathan was in line to be the next king of Israel. His father was Saul the king. And he's laying down all that would have been anticipated by him saying, David, you are the rightful king. He was willing to risk his life for David. What a tremendous friend. This is the kind of love that Moses would call us to have towards others. We say, who, who am I supposed to love like this? Well, it says your neighbor. Well, who's my neighbor? I'm glad you asked that question. It's a familiar question, right? Because this uh, this was what was asked to Jesus. This is the context of the parable of the Good Samaritan. Remember that one? In Luke chapter 10 and verse 25, it says, And behold, a scholar of the law stood up and was putting him, that is Jesus, to the test. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? Have you not read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. So this guy asked Jesus, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Love God with all of your being, all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as much as yourself. Now the guy who's testing Jesus should have said, How? How is that possible? How could I love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength? How could I love my neighbor as much as myself? Who can do that? But he didn't. He should have abased himself before Jesus because the law is a spotlight that shines upon our hearts and helps us to see none of us obey this command as we ought to. None of us love God with all of our being. None of us love our neighbor as much as ourselves. But in verse 29 it says, this is very important, wishing to justify himself. Wishing to pardon and acquit himself. Wishing to juke the law of God. He said to Jesus, who's my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? Now, often those who want to muddy the waters of the clarity of God's word, it's a subtle attempt to get out underneath the authority of God's word. And that's what he's doing here. You know, who can really understand the Bible anyways? Who's my neighbor? That's up for debate. We should have a pharisaical debate about that. And we'll, we'll call a moratorium upon this and revisit the question in five years. No, no, no. Jesus responds, with a parable. A man was going down to Jerusalem, from Jerusalem to Jericho. He fell among robbers. They stripped him and beat him. And he went away leaving him half dead. And a priest. Walking along the road. He sees him. He passed him on the other side. Likewise here comes a Levite down the road. And when he came to a place and saw him. He passed on the other side. But a Samaritan. 
who was on a journey, came upon him. And when he saw him, he felt compassion. And he came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him. Whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? So now Jesus turns the question to the man who asked, Who is my neighbor? And he gives an example with three different people, a Levite, a priest, and a Samaritan. The Levite and the priest ignored the dude who's dying there lying. And the one man, the Samaritan, helped him. And so Jesus asked the question, Who is the neighbor? The answer is quite obvious, right? But the man is not even willing to utter that dirty S word of, Samaritan, and so in verse 37, the one who showed mercy to him. Then Jesus said, go and do the same. What's the point? Your neighbor are Samaritans. You know those people who don't worship like you? Those people who have aberrant beliefs? That's your neighbor. In fact, this all really Jesus is expounding Leviticus chapter 19. I read it already in your hearing in, in verse 34 of Leviticus 19. The other time, and as far as I know, the only other time love as yourself comes up in all the Old Testament is at the end of Leviticus 19. 19.34, it says, The sojourner who sojourns with you shall be to you as the native among you. In other words, treat the sojourner as well as you would treat your fellow Israelite. You shall love him as yourself, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. I am Yahweh your God. The stranger. In other words, your neighbor is anybody who is around you who's in need. Your neighbor could be your literal neighbor right next door. Your neighbor is your friend. Your neighbor is your coworker. Your neighbor is your spouse. Your neighbor are your children. Your neighbors. So this is a high standard indeed. We're to love other people around us as much as we love ourselves. So, friend, how are you doing at loving other people? I know you're doing good at loving yourself. <laughs> but how are you doing at taking that standard of self-love and not being turned in on yourself? As Augustine said, Turn, man is turned in on himself, but, but turned out towards others where you're loving others with the same kind of devotion you have to your own good. I know many of you excel in this area. Some of us have to improve. This is hard work. It's contrary to our nature, but, but as we feed our souls upon the gospel and remind ourselves of God's love and kindness towards us, it warms our heart and motivates us to move out in love towards others. But this is also a stick that beats us down, right? Because the spotlight of God's law, this standard of love, nobody obeys perfectly. And so we're guilty before God because we do not love our neighbor as ourselves. Jesus said this is the second greatest commandment. So it must be a great sin for us not to love our neighbor as much as we love ourselves. And we, we, we can't be like that man 
who approached Jesus with the question says, well, who is my neighbor? And try to justify ourselves. Instead, we ought to abase ourselves and say, oh, dear Jesus, forgive me for not loving other people as I ought to. Forgive me for being so absorbed in myself and my own problems and my own struggles and my own issues. Oh, God, forgive me. I trust Jesus to die for me, to be my substitute. Friend, is that your hope this morning? The dying Savior who takes our selfish hearts, our sin, and bears the punishment upon his back upon Calvary's hill. Friend, if that's not your hope to stand before a holy God, I urge you to turn to Jesus. Turn to the one who's willing to forgive you of all your law-breaking And for those of us who that is our hope, may the gospel of our Lord, the good news of his death and resurrection, motivate us to move out in love towards others. But you may have noticed I skipped over the second part of verse 17. This parallel stanza to love your neighbor as yourself says, you may surely reprove your neighbor and so not bear sin because of him. Now this is something we need to hear. (laughs) Because reproving your neighbor is parallel to what? Loving your neighbor. Which again, this is kind of a slap into our kind of evangelical subculture face because we so often abide by that 11th commandment of you shall be nice. But reproof doesn't sound nice. But if done properly is love. To reprove someone, to help someone see the air of their way, that is to seek their good. To correct someone, to reprove, to even if it's if it's an unbeliever who needs to be summoned to repentance and to turn to Christ, or if it's a believer who needs corrected in a sinful habit, to call them to obedience, to call them to righteousness. This is parallel to loving your neighbor as yourself. And and here in the context of not holding a grudge or hating your brother, here the idea is, how about instead of speaking to yourself about their sin or speaking to other people about their sin, how about you talk to them about it? Talk to them about it. To reprove your neighbor. This is a theme that we see throughout the Scripture. Proverbs 27, 5 says, Better is reproof that is revealed than love that is hidden. Better is reproof that is revealed than love that is hidden. Or, same context, faithful are the wounds of a friend, deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. A friend who wounds you. A friend who reproves you and you think, that didn't feel good. (laughs) But it might have been for your good. This kind of reproof is what the Lord himself does. Proverbs 3.12 For whom Yahweh loves, he reproves. Even as a father reproves the son in whom he delights. It's the same idea in the New Testament. Remember Matthew 18, 15 following? If your brother sins, go and show him his fault on Instagram. No. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. 
If he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses even to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And again, sadly, so many in our church subculture would say, that sounds so unloving. And yet, Jesus is the one who said it, and in Leviticus 19.17, that's what's parallel to loving your neighbor as yourself. Now, I'm not saying that's the only way you love your neighbor. Hopefully, there's more to it than that. But certainly, this must be the mo- love must be the motive of reproof. And when there's reproof, and it's seeking the best good of that person, it's a loving thing. Galatians 6.1, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens And so fulfill the law of Christ. If a brother's caught in sin, restore him. Well, we can go on and on quoting verse after verse. But notice notice the last part of verse 17 in Leviticus. And so not bear sin because of him. This sacred responsibility we have to reprove one another in love, what this seems to suggest is that if we don't do this and our brother or sisters continue down this path of sin, we bear a measure of responsibility for not telling them. You see a person heading down a road where the bridge is out, and you're walking down that road, there's a measure of responsibility to say, no, don't go. Or the other day, as I was driving up Connecticut, That lovely detour sign is there, and people are clearly confused, and somebody was beginning to head the wrong way. I was honking my horn, no, no, you're going the wrong way, it's a one-way road. This principle we see in, in Ezekiel chapter 33. God says through the prophet Ezekiel, Son of man, speak to the sons of your people and say to them, If I bring a sword upon the land and the people of the land, uh, people of the land take one man from among them and make him their watchman, and he sees the sword coming from upon the land and blows the trumpet and warns the people, then he who hears the sound of the trumpet and does not take warning, and the sword comes and takes him away, his blood will be on his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet and did not take warning. His blood will be upon himself. He had, but had he taken the warning, he would have escaped with his life. Verse 6, but if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet, and the people are not warned, and the sword comes and takes a person from them, he is taken away in his iniquity, but the blood I will require from the watchman's hand. What is the prophet Ezekiel saying? They, they all understood the concept of the watchman. There's the guy who's the lookout. He's the guy on the watchtower. He's up high on the walls, and if he sees an army coming, his job is to sound the alarm. Hey, guys, the enemy's coming. Watch out. Get your weapons ready. But if he's sleeping, or if he's been paid off, if he fails to warn, 
God says the blood will be on his head. The Apostle Paul picks up on this imagery in Acts chapter 20 when he's talking to the Ephesian elders in verse 26 and he says, Therefore I testify this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. The Apostle Paul saying, I'm a watchman on the wall and I told you, you better listen. And so friends, this puts a sacred responsibility. This kind of love is a kind of love that speaks up. This kind of love is when we see brother or sister going down a path of destruction that we summon them back. This, path, this, this kind of love when it sees our neighbor headed for an eternity in hell is willing to warn them and say, turn, turn away, turn back towards the Lord Christ. There's forgiveness, there's an offer of forgiveness in the gospel that's available to you. Will you die? Will you refuse this offer? We all have a sacred responsibility in loving our neighbor to speak up. Again, instead of thinking about their sin, holding a grudge, getting into bondage of bitterness, we are to be ambassadors. Steve Byers, in his book, excellent book, Overcoming Bitterness, he brings up this story. That's from a book that later became a movie called 12 Years a Slave. It's a story about a man by the name of Solomon Winthrop. And he lived during the time right before the Civil War and during the Civil War. And he was born in the North as a free man, despite the fact that he was an African American. His father, named Mintus, had been a slave in Rhode Island, but when he was freed, his family moved to New York. And Solomon, his son, therefore, was born a free man. He was a talented man. He had a company where he was a raft maker with employees. He was even a gifted fiddler. Eventually married, had a wife named Anne, three children. And in 1841, Solomon's wife took a job as a cook for several weeks that required her to travel. And once she finished that job, she was going to come back. And during that time when she left, there were some travelers who came to town that wanted Solomon to play in their group in this traveling musical show as a fiddler. They promised that he would be back before his family returned, so Solomon agreed. And one night while they were there together, the two men drugged Solomon. And when he awoke, he was in chains and on his way to being sold into slavery in Washington, D.C., So Solomon was sent to the deep south as a slave, though he was born free. Some 12 years went by. Imagine 12 years being separated from your wife and children. And there was a carpenter from Canada who who came down and was doing some work, some carpentry work on the plantation for Solomon's master, And Solomon told this carpenter about his story, how he was born a free man, but he had been enslaved and had spent the past 12 years in slavery, separated from his family. And Solomon pleaded with this carpenter to to, to notify the people from his home area, to notify his wife. Well, the carpenter finished the job and 
Weeks went by and Solomon didn't hear anything. Months went by, Solomon didn't hear anything. And then, finally, a sheriff came and visited that plantation. And with guns, released Solomon back to freedom. Couldn't help me make me make me think about so so often Christians are born again into freedom in Christ, but then move back into a kind of slavery of bitterness, anger, vengeance. I need to go back to the gospel and enjoy that freedom that they have in Christ as forgiven sinners who've experienced the grace of God so that they move out in love and forgiveness towards others. May God help us to do that. Let's pray.